Nuclear Shenanigans The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, is the agency entrusted with protecting people and the environment from the ravages of the nuclear industry. And it hates to be confronted by concerned, informed citizens who have real complaints against them for what they are not doing to protect them. These are people who make massive adjustments in their lives to be able to attend NRC public meetings in order to point out all the many places where the agency has failed in its mission. But the NRC appears to be more invested in protecting the nuclear industry than we the people. And then you learn that two NRC in-person public meetings on the relicensing of aging nuclear reactors in Texas were suddenly canceled at the last minute with no notice to the public, officially scuttling opposition and silencing their critics. And then one of those critical, concerned citizens who is leading the fight tells you, They are just afraid. They are chickens. They are afraid of the public. They make these dangerous decisions and they will not even hear from the public. They are hiding. Their offices have been closed. You can't reach them on the phone most of the time. I have never seen such a renegade agency, and I agree with you. I think Congress needs to look at the NRC in a really big way. Well, it's not common to hear Karen Haddon, executive director of the Texas Seed Coalition, pop off at these Nuclear Regulatory Commission shenanigans. We couldn't even play her full comments without bleeping up what the Federal Communications Commission might object to. But looking at the situation through her eyes, you see once again how the powers that be slam we the people into sticking in that awful, devastating seat that we and even they all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we examine the recent Nuclear Regulatory Commission shenanigans regarding planned in-person public hearings on the 20-year license extensions proposed for the Comanche Peak nuclear reactors in Texas. We talk with Karen Haddon, Executive Director of the SEED Coalition, SEED standing for Sustainable Energy and Economic Development. Karen is a linchpin in the fight against license extension for these aging, decaying nukes, and what she reports as the latest NRC gamesmanship has moved many of us to begin calls for Congress to investigate the NRC for all of their operating practices. That's our featured interview, and we will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, 
and more honest nuclear information than we'll ever get out of U.S. Sellout, uh, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 10, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the U.S., where the bomb cyclone storm that swept across North America just before Christmas caused tense moments at Energy Harbor's Davis-Bessey nuclear power plant, 30 miles east of downtown Toledo, Ohio. Water along the Ottawa County shoreline dropped below what federal regulators considered optimal, forcing Davis-Bessey operators to get the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's permission to keep the plant online during the storm, which they got. David Lockbaum, a longtime nuclear safety engineer who now does private consulting, said, If the water level drops below the technical specification limit, the pumps are less and less able to send water to the pipes. If it gets low enough, it sends air, a situation which would lead to a meltdown. And Michael Keegan, a longtime anti-nuclear activist from the Monroe County area surrounding the plant, said he believes Energy Harbor should have just shut down Davis-Bessey until the storm subsided. To this, we add items from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission report, report, as put forth on the tweets of Edwin Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists. At the troubled Grand Gulf nuclear plant in Mississippi, leaky doors and leaky floor plugs were responsible for two events in October when secondary containment lost pressure and was declared inoperable. At Diablo Canyon II nuclear reactor in Northern California, the through-wall weld crack in reactor coolant system piping that was discovered back in October was caused by, quote, vibration-induced fatigue propagation initiated at a weld flaw. In other words, the damn thing is falling apart. In October, the Callaway nuclear reactor in Missouri operated for five days in a condition prohibited by its technical specifications after air conditioning for vital electrical equipment became inoperable due to frost and condensation. At the Vogel 3 nuclear reactor in Georgia, an entire stage of critical automatic depressurization system valves were rendered inoperable. Inadequate work processes, whatever those are, were blamed for this violation of technical specifications. At Nine Mile Point 2 nuclear reactor in New York State, a reactor water level decrease occurred that shut down the reactor. A small change in the digital feed water control system at the Perry nuclear plant in Ohio caused a low water level in the reactor vessel and triggered an automatic reactor trip, a scram. The reason for this incident is still unknown. And there's lots more, because let's face it, it's nukes. What could be more numbnuts than substituting coal plants for nuclear ones? But this new scheme, coal to nuclear, is really about sustaining the nuclear weapons industry. Here's Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. This show likes to have a numbnuts of the week award and nothing could be more numbnuts than deciding that the answer to the problems of climate change is to convert closed coal plants into, drumroll, nuclear power plants. The new programme, Coal to Nuclear, has a snappy little acronym to go with it, C2N, but it's more like CPR for a terminal nuclear power industry that continues to thrash around trying to avoid the inevitable ministering of last rites. 
It's a program of the U.S. Department of Energy, but it's also got, guess who's soot-covered hands all over it? Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He may be promising his depressed coal constituencies that this harebrained and expensive scheme is the latest jobs panacea. But of course, even in the unlikely event that C2N were to materialize somewhere, it will come far too late for anyone seeking a job today or next month or next year or even 10 years from now. And of course, it would also come far too late for climate change. The DOE study that recommended this needless time and money-wasting detour away from genuine climate fixes was conducted by Argonne National Laboratory, Idaho National Laboratory, and Oak Ridge National Laboratory. All of them are in the nuclear weapons business, which is, of course, and as usual, what this is really all about. The major driver for civil nuclear new build is sustaining the supply chain to the nuclear weapons sector, something the nuclear weapons industry makes no secret of. Cut off the nuclear power artery and it's in big trouble. Here is what the Energy Futures Initiative had to say about it. A strong domestic supply chain is needed to provide for nuclear Navy requirements. This supply chain has an inherent and very strong overlap with the commercial nuclear energy sector and has a strong presence in states with commercial nuclear power plants. This supply chain for meeting the critical national security need for design and operation of Navy reactors includes a workforce trained in science and engineering. And here's the Atlantic Council on the same subject. The lack of a civilian nuclear sector would present an immediate and significant economic shock and impact on the labor force, which in turn would have immediate and longer term budgetary implications for the US government. Last November, UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres warned that, quote, we are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. And yet the nuclear power industry, unfit as it is, remains in the driver's seat. The head of its American lobbying arm even boasted that, quote, nuclear energy is going to create incredible new career opportunities all over the country. Look up incredible in the dictionary. It means not credible, hard to believe. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Over to Japan where Prime Minister Fumio Kishida continues to ramp up his plans for the nuclearization of the country. On December 22nd, his advisory panel approved a plan to extend the lifespans of nuclear reactors beyond 60 years and build new units to replace those that are decommissioned, reversing policies put in place after the Fukushima disaster in 2011. While massive demonstrations calling for the abolition of atomic power were a regular occurrence in the wake of the meltdowns at Fukushima Daiichi in 2011, recent polls, no attribution as to where those polls are from or who was polled, indicate growing support for restarting idled plants. As memories of the disaster and the immediacy of the panic that followed fade and are buried under an ongoing barrage of pro-nuclear stories in the media. The government still faces opposition from local residents over nuclear restarts, and lawsuits related to safety concerns are still keeping many reactors offline. On the website, we will link to an editorial from the Asahi Shimbun, Without national debate, radical nuclear policy shift is intolerable. And also an NPR story, After the Fukushima disaster, Japan swore to phase out nuclear power, 
but not anymore. Two workers who developed leukemia and other illnesses while working on the cleanup of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant triple meltdown have been certified as workers' compensation workers. Japan's Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare recognized a causal relationship between the work and these two men who worked inside the remains of the Fukushima nuclear power plants after the accident. Both in their 60s and 70s, they worked for a TEPCO contractor and were involved in restoration work. Since the accident in 2011, eight workers have been diagnosed with leukemia and thyroid cancer, bringing the total number of workers' compensation cases to just 10. Really? Meanwhile, the scope of the Fukushima nuclear disaster accident compensation has been expanded to include psychological damage stemming from the March 11, 2011 disaster. It will significantly expand the scope of compensation for people affected by changes to their livelihood due to a long period of evacuation from areas around the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Not only those who lived in the difficult-to-return zones, but those who live in other evacuation-designated zones will be eligible for compensation of up to 2.5 million yen each, or just under $19,000 USD. With the Japanese government continuing in its plans to dump radioactive nuclear wastewater from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean, starting as early as July of this year, 2023, China is increasing the pressure for them to stop, and they are threatening to take Japan to court for this nuclear water dumping. Those who fish for a living from China, the Republic of Korea, and other Southeastern Asian countries, including Japan, depend on the waters in the region to make a living, which explains why Japanese fishermen were protesting the move to dump the radioactive wastewater into the Pacific. Now, Recent studies show that the region most polluted by the discharge in two years will be the west coast of the United States. With the plans to dump over 1.3 million metric tons of radioactive waste, some environmentalists in the Pacific have said that it's like waging a nuclear war on Pacific people. There is the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and multiple nuclear safety conventions to which Japan is a signatory that should prohibit these plans but have not been paid attention to by Japan. So the call is now coming, starting from China, to sue the Japanese government in international courts to stop the dumping. On December 29, China's foreign ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning said at a regular news conference that the ocean discharge plans for the contaminated water is by no means Japan's domestic affair and called the country's moves to push ahead with the discharge preparations as, quote, reckless and irresponsible. We will have links up to two articles on this. One from The Guardian is, Japan must work with the Pacific to find a solution to the Fukushima water release issue, otherwise we face disaster. And French activist Hervé Courtois, the anti-nuclear fox himself, has a brilliant takedown of a Euronews propaganda piece that falsely claims Japan is taking all necessary precautions against the plans to discharge treated water. Internationally, some good news. In 2022, five countries signed and nine ratified the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And now we kick off 2023 with the 92nd signatory to this treaty, the African nation of Djibouti. 
68 of those countries have become states parties to the treaty, meaning that it has been ratified through their own governmental ratification process. It's a great start for the new year. And now, from the sublime to the ridiculous, here's... Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None Nuts Out of Week. The UK's national security was put at risk when an IT worker at Sellafield took home USB memory sticks containing sensitive nuclear systems data. Sellafield is a large multifunction nuclear site on the coast of Cumbria, England. Its primary activities are nuclear waste processing and storage and nuclear decommissioning. A black mesh bag belonging to one Louise Telford was found in the site's car park. Inside the bag were USB memory sticks on which she was storing the computer operating system for the Thorpe nuclear fuel reprocessing plant. Miss Telford who suffers from a number of medical conditions which require her to take medication every day, blamed her disability and quote-unquote forgetfulness for failing to pick up the bag when she dropped it. Explaining why she had the sensitive data on the USB stick, she said she needed to start work late each day because of her disability. She put the software on USB sticks in an unencrypted form, so she could work from home on her own computer after managers locked away official unencrypted USB drives by 4.30 p.m. for security reasons. Miss Telford put the company information on the USB stick along with personal photos and work relating to her weekend job at the computer game retailer Game. As soon as the problem was discovered, she was immediately sacked for gross misconduct. She then retaliated with a disability discrimination claim, which failed. But just think, if she hadn't dropped that black mesh bag in the parking lot and been unable to retrieve it, and if it hadn't been found by somebody responsible on site who turned it in, she'd still be walking around with unencrypted sensitive data that could have potential impact on nuclear safety, the threat of terrorism, and overall national security. Considering the magnitude of the loophole through which this nuclear problem fell, whoever's in charge of it, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We have a tremendous amount of information coming out of Japan, and we're going to take the time to tell you in a special report that will start off next week's Nuclear Hot Seat number 604. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... It's a new year, but we're stuck with the same old set of nuclear nightmares. And those in power seem more interested in nuclear posturing and ducking out on their responsibilities to the public than the long-term survival of humanity and the planet. I know I can say this to you because I know that you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this show. That's what we set out to provide at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, and footnoted. We present interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future, as well as features spotlighting people from the front lines of activism around the world. How do we do it? There's only one way. That's with your support. Without it, 
Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue meeting our monthly expenses and continue producing. So if you're grateful for the information you get from this show, now would be a perfect time to support us with a donation. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation of any size. Or join our active group of sustainers to set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. Even $5 a month will make a big difference. And let's face it, that's what you would spend on a cup of coffee and a tip to a barista here in the U.S. But that recurring $5 forms the foundation of the funds that keep us going. And as a 501c3 not-for-profit, any donation you make will be tax-deductible. So do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running so we can continue to search out and share information that the nuclear industry would rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, you've got my gratitude. Now here's this week's featured interview. Oh, the nuclear shenanigans to cover up nuclear cowardice. It's hard for those who oppose nuclear to organize their attendance at the rare in-person meetings set by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on relicensing and other issues. But in Texas, where a 20-year license extension for two aging, decaying Comanche Peak nuclear reactors is up for consideration, great effort went into organizing concerned citizens to be able to appear in person to confront these nuclear overlords. And then the NRC, at the very last minute, canceled two in-person meetings in Texas. They made sure they did it too late to get word out to a lot of well-prepared attendees who were flying or driving in so they could change their plans and their reservations. And what is the NRC offering instead? A single Zoom meeting, two hours in length, in the middle of an afternoon on a work day. In other words, It's total manipulation by the NRC to exclude the bulk of the people who would want to speak and tell them exactly what they're doing wrong. And the concerned citizens involved are furious. Thus, it was fortuitous that I caught a late Sunday night text from Karen Haddon. She has worked on energy and nuclear power issues since 2000 and is currently the executive director of the SEED Coalition, which stands for Sustainable Energy and Economic Development. The group actively opposes dangerous nuclear waste storage plans for Texas and similar plans for New Mexico. Karen won the 2022 Judy Johnsrud Unsung Hero Award from Beyond Nuclear for her years of anti-nuclear activism. So when I read the text message from this usually mild-mannered, if forceful, activist and realized that it was a completely atypical enraged rant, I figured out anything that got Karen Haddon this upset had to be pointing at larger issues. And I was right. Karen was highlighting the NRC's playbook for scuttling opposition to its overlordship of and toadiness to the nuclear power industry. That was worth a talk. I spoke with Karen Haddon the very next day on Monday, January 9, 2023, the day before the scheduled meeting and the same day the press release from the NRC went out canceling it. How's that for advance notice? Karen Haddon, thanks for joining us this morning on Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, it's not a great situation, however. Let's start out with just explaining to people 
about the Comanche Peak nuclear reactor. What is it and where is it? Comanche Peak nuclear reactor is south southwest of Fort Worth, Texas, near the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, about 40 miles. And it's a small community, but a lot of people are still living there. And then, of course, the larger cities nearby. And that reactor's been operating since about 1990. It was the third newest in the country. And now they're busy trying to get relicensed for another 20 years Past 2030, they want to go on into the future on and on forever, which, as you know from um, our contact, which is something we are very, very upset about. What are the kinds of questions that the SEED Coalition, by the way, what does SEED stand for? SEED is the Sustainable Energy and Economic Development Coalition. We're statewide in Texas, plus we work with allies in other states and around the country. And we've been focusing on nuclear waste issues and nuclear issues in general. What are the kinds of questions that you and others in the SEED Coalition and your allies feel need to be raised regarding a license extension? Well, first of all, we consider this to be a really dangerous proposition. This reactor, like others in the country, was never designed to be run so long, so hard, They're running to generate more power than they were originally designed for. This plant was never great from the start, the two units, because they couldn't even get it right. It took 16 years to build. (laughs) This is the longest in the country. And they couldn't get the fire suppression equipment right. They had to redo that. It went on and on. It was very expensive, and the ratepayers have had to pay. Right now, we're worried Uh, mostly about people's health and safety, this thing should be shut down. You know, 2030 is already a long lifetime. 2030 for the first unit, 2033 for the second. These plants should retire, and there's no question about it. When nuclear reactors were first designed and built, the engineers across the board said these should only run for 40 years because after that, what they called embrittlement, the making brittle of the metal in the reactors and the other components would have been under such pressure and such degradation from being there for the nuclear explosions going on that they could not be considered to be safe. So any extension beyond 40 was contraindicated from the first nuclear reactors even being built. So people need to know that going in, that they're trying to not only push them to create more energy, which puts them under greater stress, but also to run them for another 20 years is, again, contraindicated. What kinds of questions does the SEED Coalition and your allies, what do you feel need to be raised regarding a license extension at Comanche Peak? Well, there's a lot of issues. We're worried about financial health and safety risks because 20 more years of this is ridiculous. And like you mentioned earlier, these plants weren't designed for this and they have embrittlement. We want to ask and talk to people firsthand about how much corrosion we have at these reactors now. We are not seeing new analysis in the documents in the license application. So we don't know. This facility has an earthen dam 
thousands of feet long. That's what holds back the cooling water. Whoa, you are saying that the cooling water, which is radioactive, it has what, tritium in it and other substances as well? Tritium. And it is being held in place by an earthen dam? An earthen dam. We do not know the extent of the testing about the integrity of that dam. We do know that there's a lot of fracking in the region, that there are injection wells in the region, and an increasing amount of earthquake activity. So we don't even know if it's solid 100% right now, much less have any kind of estimates of what's going to happen in the future. They've had drought in the region, so having enough water to cool the reactor is an issue. We just don't know what's going to happen. And we have concerns about the financial implications because if there are problems at this reactor and if there is embrittlement and metal fatigue as these things get old, how much is that going to cost to repair? And how much is that going to raise people's bills? And, you know, here in Texas, we are actually number one in the country for wind energy. And solar is coming along really, really strong. Yeah, ahead of California. Can you believe it? <laughs> so, and we're happy about that. And it's affordable and you can build it out as you need it. And here they are trying to build in 20 more years of outdated nuclear power. These things, they don't always work when we need them. We're concerned that they could go out right when we need them most. We had that problem a couple of years ago one of the other units in South Texas went down right at the start of our big winter storm that everyone's heard about. You know, 800 people died in Texas in that storm because things weren't weatherized. And that was true of the nuclear plant. It was not weatherized properly on the intake. So it went down right at the start, this presumably reliable plant. And it came back up right when the storm was over. Back at Comanche Peak, that one went down during a summer heat wave in 2017, right when we needed it most. And this is a real threat to our grid. We shouldn't be depending on this outdated nuclear technology. This is dangerous. And we are also concerned about creating more waste, 20 years more waste that we have to figure out a place for. We still don't have a permanent repository. We don't want any more. And to make the point, in case somebody is new to the issue and just hearing about this for maybe the first time, when you say the waste, you are talking about radioactive waste from the nuclear reactor with the radioactivity being from, in large part, plutonium in the waste stream. And that is deadly to human life for a half-life of 24,000 years. So you're talking about something that is deadly for a quarter of a million years. In other words, forever. Mm -hmm. Not only the 40 years of operation that it has all of this waste with no place to put it, but that it also is going into the future another 20 years of the waste with no place to put it. Exactly. And some of that radioactive waste right now is allowed to go to a facility in West Texas, which is not ideal either. But some of it, the most dangerous spent fuel rods, are going to have to stay on the site for quite some time. So that means a whole lot more deadly waste right near the Dallas-Fort Worth area. 
You know, we have to be honest about the security concerns these days. We have seen in Ukraine that nuclear plants become weapons of war. They become terrorist targets. And we've known this, but we've now seen it firsthand. And we want this plant to retire. So let's take a look at what's been going on regarding hearings on the future of Comanche Peak. There were hearings scheduled to begin next Tuesday, January 10, in-person hearings. Where were they supposed to take place? And what did it take for you to get this on the schedule with the NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission? First of all, the NRC does not appear to be interested in hearing from anyone. They have once again tried their technique of sneaking things in during the holiday season. The first announcements, the first press release was December 1st right when people are starting to get together with families after a long COVID hiatus where we couldn't see each other. And people were very, very busy with the holiday season. So that's when they announced this license extension. And then throughout the holiday season, you know, no one has really had time or attention until after New Year's. Well, we had a public meeting scheduled by the NRC for January 10th. And we had a lot of citizens that are concerned, at least had put January 10th on their calendar to be near the reactor site in Glen Rose, Texas, for two in-person meetings. Well, you know, there was news media back at the start of December that COVID was about to get bad, right? It was not any big secret. We were expecting that. But we were happy to see in-person meetings because we figure between masks and some distancing that this could be done safely. And we wanted public meetings in person. There was one in the afternoon. There was one in the evening, which is good so that more of the public can be there. And there were supposed to be exhibits where people could look at the maps and the charts and the data and talk to some of the NRC people. This is where your text from last night comes into play. And I must say, it was spectacular. Yeah, well, Friday afternoon before this Tuesday meeting. We're talking here Friday, January 6th. Right. Well, Friday afternoon, in regards to the January 10th meetings, we get a rumor circulated that they have postponed the meeting that we are all working towards. A lot of people, and we have been putting out emails all around the state telling people about this. Some people are planning to travel to be there because it matters. We're concerned. And we've been working really hard on this. We've been telling the media about it. And there's no telling how far those emails have then circulated into other circles. So we get this rumor that they've postponed the meeting. So it wasn't until late Friday afternoon where I was even able to reach anyone at NRC to confirm this. And here's what I heard. This was Victor Drix at at NRC Region 4, who he told me, oh, we tweeted this afternoon. It's like, oh, well, you know, I was (laughs) certainly sitting at the Twitter website watching for this, right? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're all glued to Twitter to see what see oh, further in the meltdown. What the, what the NRC might say today. <laughs> so he said, we put out a tweet and Monday we're going to put out a press release. This is Monday about postponing a meeting for the very next day, Tuesday. And we've got people traveling. We've got people 
potentially catching a plane because Texas is big. You don't always drive. We've got people driving. We've got people with hotel reservations. We've got the media lined up. We've got people ready. And they plan to give us one day's notice that it's not happening. I can't tell you who's going to show up there, who's going to find that there isn't even a meeting being held. And what they plan to do now instead, instead of four hours of in-person time, they plan to do two hours online in the middle of the day from 2 to 4 p.m., which is incredibly difficult for working people and families and children and no FaceTime. When we had this kind of setup before, we were really, really angry when they tried to do this on different issues. And we said, we want you to postpone until we can meet in person and talk. These decisions have implications for thousands of years. We can't wait 30 days, 60 days, 90, whatever it takes to have a real public meeting. So we are incredibly angry at the lack of democracy, at the lack of respect, at the lack of organization at the NRC. I don't think they've got their act together. I don't know if they know what they're doing. You know, this may sound like a sidebar, but I don't think it is. Netflix right now has a series that just dropped on Bernie Madoff and the Ponzi scheme that he ran, the fraud that he perpetuated for all those years on Wall Street. In the last of the episodes, they come down against the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, on all the ways that that government agency failed to protect the public and that there were congressional hearings and that it was damning. Mm -hmm. It didn't have the consequences, one might hope, but still, it was damning information. I think that it's time for Congress to take a look at the nuclear rubber stamp commission Mm -hmm. and really examine what it is that they have not been doing and their manipulations to avoid having any kind of responsibility. I mean, we're talking about four hours in two meetings face to face with people. You know, you wear your mask, you show you're vaccinated and updated on it. You do whatever social distancing you need to. You don't shake hands, you bump elbows. I have my suppositions, but why do you think they have behaved in this way towards the public, the concerned public regarding this hearing? Well, they're using COVID as an excuse, but they didn't consider that when they first set this up. They could have done a combination meeting that was partly online and partly in person, hybrid meetings. Everyone else is doing them government agencies, the capital, the city here in Austin, they could have done that. They are just afraid of the public. They are afraid to talk to us. They are afraid that our anger will build if we're in a room together. And you know what? Our anger is building. This is outrageous. It's a bunch of bullshit. How dare they? When the NRC did hold online meetings At the end of the licensing on waste storage in New Mexico, they didn't even show their faces. They had an online meeting where there were little boxes at the top that said these are the NRC, well, they were NRC people, and they just had their name. You couldn't even see their faces. That's what's different about a public meeting versus one that's held online. You don't even know that they're there. You don't know if you're talking into a box 
they might have just turned on their screen and walked away. You see no facial expressions, no responses. There's no people there. So it's ridiculous that they managed to call that a public meeting when they only put boxes of their faces. No image. They need to own up to this and talk to the public. If they're going to do something this dangerous, this extreme to do another 20 years on a reactor that should shut down, they ought to hear from the public face to face. They need to hear about the concerns they don't know about because they're not local and they haven't done additional research. They haven't looked into how much fracking there is now that didn't used to be there. They haven't looked into increasing earthquakes. They haven't looked into the dam integrity. And they're even telling us that that's out of scope. We can't talk about it. How dare they? Now, if you've got all this water, tritium containing water, that could escape and go downstream into the Brazos River, isn't that something we should be able to talk about? You know, that's the cooling water for the reactor. What happens if that dam breaks? They are just afraid. They are chickens. They are afraid of the public. They make these dangerous decisions and they will not even hear from the public. They are hiding. Their offices have been closed. You can't reach them on the phone most of the time. I have never seen such a renegade agency. And I agree with you. I think Congress needs to look at the NRC in a really big way. There's some talk of create a new agency. That doesn't solve the problem. It's fix this fix what we've got and get people in there with integrity. In the last 24 hours, I find myself thinking of the things all around the country that have happened that have been accidents and leaks and breakdowns and problems in the nuclear industry, one after another. We don't always hear about them and we're not getting it put together in a big picture. But I think Congress needs to do that. You know, we've had a fire and explosion at the whip site in New Mexico. That was dangerous, and a lot of workers got exposed. WIP being the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, which is the only licensed repository for nuclear waste in the country. Yes, thank you. Yes. And, you know, first they had a fire, and they had workers trapped underground. All their equipment failed, or most of it. Workers got stuck underground for 45 minutes when they could barely breathe and their masks weren't working. Meanwhile, they cut off the oxygen up above so the fire wouldn't be spreading. And then damage was done to the plant. They were trying to get air, so they were slashing some of these curtains around the air shaft. Then it was a $2 billion repair project. And then nine days later, they had an explosion of barrels of reactor waste that they said was unrelated. And one of the things that I have been doing on Nuclear Hot Seat in the weeks where I have time for it is I compile the tweets from Edwin Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists because he puts out tweets all the time based on what the NRC reports of the day are showing. And of course, he puts in a little bit of attitude too, which I always appreciate. But the compilation is in any given week, you've got anywhere from half a dozen to a dozen or more incidents at nuclear reactors around the country, where maybe if you look at one of them, you go, no big deal. But if you look at the pattern of what is going on, they are all breaking down. They are wearing out. The equivalent would be it's supposed to run for 40 years and then shut down. 
would you really want to take a 40-year-old car and go, hey, it's great to run for another 20? You know? Right. Everything is going to have to be replaced on it. So why don't you shut it down and just go to solar, wind, geothermal, any of the genuinely renewable energies as opposed to relying upon nuclear. But here we have the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which receives, and I forget the exact amount, but I think it's somewhere around 80% of its funding comes from the nuclear industry to pay the fees for NRC inspectors and the like to watch over their facilities. So every time a nuke shuts down, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission loses money. Right. This is all about the money, isn't it? And in, in the world of inspections, we worry about that too. I, several years ago, read the report by David Lockbaum about year-long outages of nuclear reactors. I mean, in, you know, a year-long outage, that's serious. And it's expensive. It's expensive for the rate payers. And, and the repairs are extensive in cases like that. Well, he looked at many of those cases. There have been many of, of these long extended outages around the country. And typically what he found was a lot of those same reactors had just received glowing awards for their safety. It's like, now how can this be? I think they're not doing an adequate job on inspection. You remember the reactor, Davis Bessie had a hole in the reactor's head in the steel Boric acid had been dripping and ate all the way through six inches of steel, leaving five-eighths of an inch left. That's all that was left from having breaching the entire reactor. And who knows how much radiation would be released if that had happened. How could it leak that long? You know, where were the inspectors? Glowing reports is typical before a major accident. And I think all around the country, we need to wake up because these reactors do need to be shut down. They do need to be replaced. And we need to quit this insanity. I always do a reminding you at the very end of the show. And I have a list that I go through. And perhaps the most prophetic one and the one that scares me in the most is the worst way to have nuclear protection is by luck we don't want to rely on luck when it comes to a nuke that's not good enough so let me ask you this is incredibly frustrating the meeting has now been changed over to something over Zoom that right now is scheduled to take place for only two hours in the middle of the afternoon on January 17. I know that you're going to do your best to be on that. And I also know that they will eat up a lot of that time with their own bureaucracy. They will cherry pick who gets to ask questions and what questions actually get asked. And then they will, you know, dust their hands and wipe themselves off and move on to the next. What would you like to see happen leading up to that? And then in the wake of that to start putting their feet to the fire? Well, we would love to have people help cry out about the injustice here and to let the NRC know that we should be waiting however long it takes, six months, four months to get real in-person hearings, public meetings in the day and in the evening. And our timeline for the legal actions, which coincides, we have a January 30th deadline right now, that needs to be extended as well. Because right now, 
when we should be busy working on the legal case, we are now forced to spend our time letting people know about the changes that have happened. So please, anyone who can contact the NRC, we'll make sure that the email address is up on the website here and tell them we need an extension until the COVID risks are no longer a problem. You know, I think they're hiding behind this in this particular case. I believe in safety about COVID, but I think in this case, what we're seeing is an excuse. I think they're not ready and I think they're afraid afraid of the public. And this needs to end. They need to hold public meetings day and night and let the public have an opportunity to speak. But other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, what did you think of the play? (laughs) Say what you really think. We will have necessary links up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode, number 603. Beyond what we've already covered, Karen, is there anything else that you would like to add at this time? I'm just really grateful to you for this opportunity and for all of the people that we work with around the country who have been so supportive. You know, we've been trying real hard not to get the most dangerous high-level radioactive waste to be dumped on Texas. And we have gotten response and support from people around the country. We want to make the NRC do the right thing and try to do things in a less risky manner. Safe is not a word that can even be used, but you know, let's work together to eliminate the risks and to make it less risky as we go. So thank you everybody who can contact the NRC, tell them we need at least another four months, maybe six months until the NRC can hold a public meeting safely. Karen Haddon, First of all, I'm so grateful that my phone was close enough to me that I could hear your (laughs) rant go off on my phone last night. It was quite spectacular and coming from you. That was pretty amazing. I want to thank you for all the work you're doing, for your ferocious and logical spirit in all of this, and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much, Libby. Appreciate your show and all that you do. That was Karen Haddon. Executive Director of the SEED Coalition, which stands for Sustainable Energy and Economic Development. We will have links up to the currently scheduled as January 17, but who knows what they will be doing, NRC Zoom hearing on Comanche Peak. That will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 603. We will also have an email linked to the NRC where you can make your thoughts known and demand that in-person public meetings on the proposed Comanche Peak licensing extension be held in Glen Rose, Texas, when it is possible to do so safely in terms of COVID. State also that deadlines to intervene and request a hearing should be postponed until that time as well. I mean, what's the problem with delaying for a few months when what's at stake is a quarter of a million years of deadly radioactive waste? It's only fair that they give us more time and that they don't cancel at the last moment. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. It's that time of year again when the Union of Concerned Scientists sets the doomsday clock for 2023. Last year, the doomsday clock was set a month before Russia invaded Ukraine with threats of nuclear bombing 
and multiple near misses of missile assaults on the six-reactor Zaporizhia nuclear power facility. Many of these attacks damaged the power supply for the reactors and put them at risk of meltdown should the backup generators fail or run out of fuel. Many of us, including myself, contacted the Union of Concerned Scientists and asked them to reset the doomsday clock in light of this new and heightened danger to the world. But they did not want to change the annual nature of the event. At least that's what the people I spoke with said. So now... When we're so much closer to nuclear Armageddon than we were in the past two years of it being set at 100 seconds to midnight, will they bite the nuclear bullet and reflect the actual magnitude of the dangers that we face? You can find out in real time by watching the 2023 Doomsday Clock announcement on January 24th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, either by going to the website thebulletin.org or on their Facebook page. We have just learned from Dianuke, the resource portal for nuclear information, resources, analysis, and discussion, based in India, that filmmaker Pradeep Indulkar has passed away. In addition to making films, Pradeep was an engineer, an activist, and perhaps above all, an empathic human being who believed in a better, more democratic and sustainable world free of nuclear power. Pradeep's films were High Power, which portrayed farmers and fisherfolk living around India's first nuclear plant in Tarapur near Mumbai City. And his other film, Jaidapur Live, narrated the courageous stories of rural communities and other fishing and farming villages in Jaidapur, who mobilized a powerful and long-standing people's agitation against the world's largest nuclear power plant proposed in this ecologically fragile region. His films were screened internationally, and in 2013, he was awarded the International Uranium Film Festival's Yellow Oscar Award. Dianuk has organized an online memorial event in which a screening of Pradeep's film will be followed by a conversation with some of his friends and colleagues. The date is January 21st, 2023, and it will take place at 6 a.m. in Los Angeles, 9 a.m. on the East Coast time zone, 11 p.m. in Tokyo, 3 p.m. in Berlin and Paris, and in Moscow, should you be able to get it, 5 p.m. We'll have a link up to register for this on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. And there has been a new photo book published in Japan that tells the history of opposition to the construction of the Anangawa nuclear power plant. Entitled, 50 Years in the Town of Nuclear Power Plants, Thinking About the Future from Anangawa, it documents the struggle to stop the construction of Tohoku Electric Power Company's Anandaga nuclear power plant in Miyagi Prefecture. The book is edited by Mikako Abe, 70 years old, and a member of the Anangawa Town Council. He says, I would like people to come into contact with the faces and thoughts of the local residents who have been fighting for half a century against nuclear power plants. The book contains approximately 340 photographs and also includes testimonies from fishermen and others who describe the situation at that time, the impact of the Great East Japan earthquake, and other events. The book is not available on Amazon, but we will publish a link to the publisher where you can get your own copy at nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 603. 
This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 10, 2023. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, ToledoBlade.com, GrandCanyonTrust.org, Tokyo-NP.CO.JP, TheGuardian.com, JapanTimes.CO.JP, JapanNews.Yomiura.CO.JP, ChinaMill.com.CN, Euronews.com, Global.ChinaDaily.com.CN, Asahi.com, NPR.org, NHK.OR.JP, CNIC.JP, Yahoo.com, Reuters.com, TheBulletin.org, WhitehavenNews.co.uk, and, as always, the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Penn-Scunter for the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Hey, don't miss out on a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. And the way to do that is easy. You can sign up for it to be delivered by your email inbox by filling out the yellow opt-in form at NuclearHotSeat.com. All it takes is your first name and an email address, and every week you will get one, count it, one email, which has the link to the show and a short description of its contents. Or if you're an avid follower of podcasts, whatever platform you're comfortable with, go there, search it out. Nuclear Hot Seat is everywhere. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email with that information to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember always, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you give proper attribution. That is, mention the name of the program, mention our website. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, and 2022 laureate of the Nuclear Free Future Award in Education. And I'm reminding you that luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to a nuclear reactor. There you've got it. This has been your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.